Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi folks and welcome back to Strength to be Human. I'm your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. It's the last show of the month of May 2021. Writing can be eternal. This will be episode 203. Now on this particular show, we're going to have five different sections. Because what I'm doing is I'm talking about writing and all the different mediums and vehicles that it could be uh, produced in. And how sometimes that makes even a... Uh, a creative difference in, in, in terms of how we do things. And it, it makes it quite interesting as well. So you can see from the very past, uh, the beginning ancient times of us doing writing all the way to now. Okay? So we're going to have a section on stone, one on paper, one about memory, one about vinyl. It could also be uh, compact disc as well. And then, of course, another one about digital which is different in compact disc, and we'll explain the difference on that, okay? All right, let's, let's go to the beginning here, all right? Now, writing can be eternal in the sense that what we say, especially if it's said well, especially if it has true relevance to uh, the human condition or just to people in, in general, you know, it could echo for centuries and, and even in eons and, and have a real impact. So it's not uh, unusual to read something that someone had wrote you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago and it still has relevancy today. Just because we're sending rockets into space every other day doesn't mean that somebody from a couple hundred or a couple thousand years ago can't speak to us you know, about how people believe and how people operate and how people think and what they do and the consequences and etc. So those things are still here with us no matter what we do. Don't forget, and let's don't forget, folks, that as much as technology has changed the world and even changed writing to a certain extent, it doesn't change the human being. If we don't fix ourselves, if we don't correct the human heart, if we can't figure out a way to improve the human condition, all we're going to do in the end is, is carry our own flaws and, and the very sins we had on Earth into space and into the stars, into other planets, it won't make a difference. So, quite frankly, it's not going to make a difference whether we have a colony on Mars or we one here on Earth, you know, if we're going to still act a fool. So, we have to do a whole lot more than just figuring out how to, to survive or even succeed in space. We need to be better people. Otherwise, it won't make any difference. It'll be just a, a waste of money and time. Alright. First section over here is writing in stone. Okay? Now, we have a couple of uh, civilizations that did this. And uh, the first one we can, we can recall is on uh, Egypt. They had what was called hieroglyphics. They're sort of like words and sometimes phrases, but they're in the, they're in the symbol. They're actual picture, picture grams. And thankfully, uh, Napoleon's party, when he uh, tried to take over Egypt, you know, in the 1800s, they actually found... Uh, translation stone uh, called the, the Rosetta Stone 
and that stone actually had the hieroglyphics next to the ancient Greek. And they also had a, a more uh, primitive version of the uh, the Egyptian local language. But the key thing was is that it had ancient Greek. So from there, they were able to translate from the ancient Greek, because it's not all that different than the Greek in the modern days, and they were able to translate the hieroglyphics that way. And that's how they were able to first have a breakthrough on what they meant. Because before that, they, they couldn't figure out what these things meant. So that was that was a huge um, uh, advantage for us to, to learn a lot about that culture. Um, Sumeria, they did it a little bit differently. They still used uh, the, uh, the stones, so to speak, but they actually were clay... And then they became, uh, you know, hard, hardened. So what they did was they had um, a, a symbol language called cuneiform. So they would actually impress upon the clay with a with a hard stone object that would create various shapes. And that was their language, and that's how they told a lot of the stories. So in Sumeria, we learned a lot about how they operated business, some of the things they talked about in their in their government and etc. But and even some stories. So it was very very helpful. You'll learn also in uh, Babylonia and uh, uh, for uh, Babylon, that's when we learned the the, the tale of Gilgamesh and, and some of the more important ancient stories also through their clay tablets. And then of course we we have the uh, similar type of hieroglyphics in in the Mayan culture. And I think they also had it in the Incas too. But um, they also used uh, these, uh, what I call, pictograms. Later on in, in ancient uh, Chinese, which they didn't use the stones, they used ideograms, which is very similar in the sense of that it had some sort of a picture or symbol, but it meant a phrase. And that, that's how the Chinese did it. But they, they, they did it more in pen paper. But those were the cultures that did everything in stone. We've seen poems from back then that were written and, and put down in stone. But it looks like a lot of what the cultures had put down had more to do with 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 business and and, and even the laws of government. So that that they seem to be more formal about that. It's very well possible, and we'll talk about that in the writing and, and memory uh, section. But it's real well possible that some of the other cultures did a lot of uh, communication about in the arts, especially through an oral tradition rather than you know through their through their hieroglyphics or through uh, clay or stone tablets and and that's how they did that so i wouldn't be surprised if that was the case all right let's go on to the next one over here and that is writing in paper now this is a lot different than stone because there was three different versions over the course of time that people had used to be able to write on paper all right now the first one is going to be and ironically is also from ancient egypt um Writing on papyrus paper, uh, the papyrus plant, which was a kind of a reed, and it grew along the sides of the Nile River. What they would do is they would rip it out, they would soak it in water for a couple of days, and then they'd lay it out and stretch it out, and then let it dry. And then once it dried, they had a, they had a, a piece of paper they could use to to write on, and that's what they did a lot of uh, a lot of. Uh, of their work on in, in ancient Egypt. Unfortunately, whatever could have been remaining, and we'll talk about this later on this particular segment, could have been stored in the Library of Alexandria, but that was destroyed. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. But So we don't actually have any papyri, um, 
paper records from from Egypt. We have all of the stuff they've done in stone and on statues and giant monuments on the pyramids and all that, but we don't actually have the paper. So we know they did it because they actually talked about it in the hieroglyphics and how they did this, but we don't actually have those physical records, unfortunately. All right, the next thing, or you could say maybe the next evolution in writing on paper or the next... Um, you know, progression is is the parchment. Now, parchment is really grabbing the the fiber of uh, of of wood, and then using a type of uh, acid to sort of gelatize it. And when it dries, then you're able to use it in sections. And eventually, people made books out of it. But it's a long process, and it was an expensive process. You know, where a papaya, if, if you knew how to write, you just can go over to the side of the now, grab the plants, and go do this stuff in your house in a couple of days. Anybody. But, uh, parchment really wasn't something for the, for the poor. Or, or for the, for the lower class. It just, cause it's an expensive process. They didn't even have, you know, the means to, to, to get it, to purchase it. I mean, they might have had some education, but they didn't have the means to do that. So that's unfortunate, and, but that's how that worked. For a long time, that was used. Now, the unusual thing about the the writing in the papyri is it probably lasted over 3,000 years. They actually stopped doing it around 1100, you know, A.D. So it lasted a long, long time. It was very popular. And other, I think they imported it, in, or rather they exported that to other cultures that visited there, and they used it, so it was used a lot. But parchment, uh, very, very heavily used in, in Europe. Uh, you had entire books they would make out of it by hand, okay? And, and it had, it really had its, uh, you know, its heyday. But uh, eventually, you know, parchment gave to regular paper, you know, when we learned to, to use wood in the mills and everything, because that's just around the time that um, we talk about uh, the printing press, in which we'll, we'll discuss here shortly. Now, let's talk about the Library of Alexandria, okay? It was a gigantic library in the city of Alexandria, which was in ancient Egypt. Now, those that ran that city, they, uh, and especially the, 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 the king there, or in this case, the, the pharaoh there, they really had like an unusual policy that says, if you come to visit the library to study things, we want you to have a copy of whatever great works of your culture and deposit it in the library. So it winds up swelling up to anywhere between forty and 400,000 various rolls of, uh, of papyrus. So it's very, very possible that it grew to a gigantic library and had many, many works from all kinds of different cultures. What we don't know, because this is, it could go either direction, or it could have gone both ways, really, because it's been both ways. We don't know if people simply uh, reproduce a copy of whatever their works at home, and then when they traveled, dropped it off before they went there, or they might have just said, listen, I, um, I'm here to study some scrolls, but I got my scribe with me over here. He'll sit over here, and he'll copy down our uh, great work, and then he'll deposit it to you here later in you know, this week or month or whatever the hell long it takes to do that. So that could have been done as well, or they could have done either way, you know, because just depending on the person's schedule, I don't think they would have a problem allowing something like that. I really don't, especially since they see the person there. You know, the person who's making this trip is probably somebody well to do. They're not going to believe that just there, 
you know, to gain some knowledge and leave. So it's real possible that that's what happened. But unfortunately, they did have a giant fire, and it burnt down a great deal of that library. You know, it's made out of dry papyrus, so it's going to go up in a cinch. It's a hell of a loss for humanity because we can just imagine all the works that could have been over there. I know there's a lot of great Greek works we could have been learning stuff about. I mean, there's, there's so many things that we, we, we wind up getting lost, you know, to the ages. I'm, I'm sure some of them we know about because we had copies elsewhere, but we just don't know what, what other things. Because remember, even if this was a place that had a lot of copies of other works that we know about, that's fine. But there's probably a lot of local stuff that could have been done there that made it. Who knows how many people who could have been working or studying there created something and left it there and didn't make a copy. You know, maybe they'll come back one day and make a copy of something. I mean, because they didn't have a typewriter or a printing press back then, so it was all done by hand. And it's, it's a lot of work. And it takes a bit of time to do, that's for sure. Now, there's a very good chance that, and, you know, it's my theory, but it, it kind of makes the most sense, that parchment pretty much gave way, not only because it's not practical to have something that, that takes that long to make and that, that's expensive, but it probably gave way, more way to the, the fact that when the printing press came, the whole point of the printing press was about manufacturing in a quick order various writings whether they could be books or pamphlets or newspapers and get it out to the general public to read and remember when we're talking about the general public we're just talking about you know the average joe you know who has a penny that can you know buy it or whatever so one of the um the real revolutions about the printing press is that it wind up in many ways democratizing writing because it's no longer just a place for the rich to have. You remember, there's, there was a point in America and many other uh, cultures where they didn't even have a public library system yet. And even when they did, you'd think the average poor person is just going to walk in there and read something? Most of them didn't even have the education. A lot of societies, including America, was an agriculturally based society for the longest time. So you need the kids in a large family to go out there and help you with the farm, not, not to go on there and learn how to read and write. So oftentimes schooling stopped at a certain point. They only had a basic, very basic education. And many of them, if they could read and write, was on a very basic level to, to get the work done of doing farm work and, and doing the business of the farm work, and that's it. it wasn't like you were reading poetry and, and writing stuff. So the printing press really coincided with many revolutions that happened within society in general. Um, it allowed books to be created. It allowed libraries to start being created that can store such books. It allowed stores to sell these books. It allowed people more access to reading things because they were not so expensive. So therefore, they can, you know, bone up on their reading and can become better. You know, it, it just allowed for more of that to happen. Of course, a public education system came about too. All of these. I mean, that, that's what the printing press allowed many things to happen at once. It really was a boon for mankind more than anything else because do not forget that when we're reading the masters of the past, and I'm talking about masters like Nathaniel Hawthorne or, you know, Henry Melville, I mean, oh, oh, many of these people that we, we talk about, 
especially uh, some of the great writers, Washington Irving, from the, the some of them from the 1700s. These are people that are from one group, and that group is the well-off people, often the rich people. These are the people that had money to have education. They had they have they had the parchment, they had the tools, they had the time, <laughs> they had the contacts to do all these works. Otherwise, we never known about them. But those are the people. Up until I would say the uh, probably after the Civil War is really when we sort of seen people who normally wouldn't be able to write or read start doing things because of the printing press. You had a lot of ex-slaves. Uh, Harry Tubman wrote something. Frederick Dublitz wrote a couple of things. Yeah, a lot of people you never see before do these sort of things because of what the technology on the printing press allowed to happen. But before all this, all of these people, I know we talk about Edgar Allan Poe is a lifetime of, you know, of, uh, of poverty, but he didn't have a lifetime of poverty. Poverty happened to him while he was an adult, unfortunately, while he was writing. Before that, he got adopted by a wealthy family, had a great education, had all the all the things you would want. He just chose arts versus, you know, his, his horrible uh, adopted father's business. He just couldn't handle doing that. It's just too boring to him. But up until that point, he had a hell of an education. He was aware of the Germanic works. He was a man of English writers. He knew French. There was just a lot he knew. It, it, it allowed him to be a great writer. Poverty or not, it didn't matter with him because he already had all the education. You couldn't be poor, though, and, and be an Edgar Allan Poe. It's just not possible back in those days. You wouldn't be able to survive. You know, unless someone, someone put you up in their, in their big house and took care of you as you were writing. But then how the hell would you get the education to even do that? Very few people were able to teach themselves that. In fact, the slaves were probably the few people in terms of a group that actually were able to teach themselves that. And oftentimes, they did it at a great risk of their life because even reading the book as a slave was an act that they could beat you and kill you for because it was against the law to be educated as a black person. And you wonder why people get upset. <laughs> so, the printing press was a real big boon. For uh, the public, uh, for the public structure of things, libraries and school systems, for the average person to be able to read and understand what the heck is going on. So it's amazing what we take for granted, not realizing that, you know, paper itself had all these different evolutions until we get to this point. All right, now before, and I mean before papyrus, and before Egypt, because I don't mean to tell everybody that, you know, the recorded history of the world didn't start until they built pyramids, because that's not the case. It just sort of worked well for my writing in paper segment. The next segment is writing in memory. All right? And that's what we're talking about, the oral tradition. Okay? There are, there are various aboriginal people in Australia that, that tell us, first, through, they do um, a colored uh, sand artwork, which is pretty incredible, that has been passed down on how to do these things for thousands of years, which tells a bit of a story. But I'll also have oral stories that the various elders continue to pass on. I'm told that they have stories in Aboriginal Australia that could go back 20, 30,000 years that they were telling the same type of story. Whether it's exactly the same or not, I don't know, because, you know, with oral traditions, sometimes... The, the new person that learned it might add another elemental spin to it. But still, in essence, it's the story. Now, for the Aboriginal people, and I don't mean to tell any culture what to do. 
Okay, because there's a lot of pros to this incredible oral tradition. But they're also a backdrop. And, and, and I feel the, the bad part of that is, is that if you're not figuring out a way to get that written down somehow in some language or even recording it somehow, you know, um, one day people are going to just die off and not do it. It hasn't happened yet for the aboriginals. They've been extremely uh, consistent and, and, and rigid about doing it. But for many of the American native tribes, uh, that is the case where you don't have but a handful left to still know the language. Now, I understand that the oral tradition of a story or a set of stories is completely different than an entire language of a group, of a cultural group. Yeah, there is a difference, but it still hinges upon oral transmission of it, and it still hinges upon the memory of all that, which... In the case of the American tribes, many of those people, there, there isn't much work on the, on the reservations they live on. And a lot of times if they want to have a life or they want to explore and do things, they have to leave there. They're not always leaving with that language or they don't get the chance to use it a lot and they forget about it as they get older, get married and have their own kids. So I think there more than any place else, it's important that they have programs that help preserve this. I understand some do. And, and it's been funded to where they can record all this and save it, which is great. Some of them have tried to figure out how to put it down in writing as, as best they can. And hopefully more of that can continue. Because if a language gets lost that way, it's, it's lost forever. You know, it's not like, you know, uh, an animal going extinct and we save some of it. Maybe one day we can possibly... You know, through technological science, you know, bring it back to, to life through, uh, you know, uh, cloning and all that. You can't do that with a dead language. Unless you already have it, you know, spoken into some place that saved it, you know, a uh, tape or, or one of those uh, compact discs or in, in a computer or something like that. Um, or if it's been written down in some fashion. That's the only way you can really preserve it. But once it's gone, it's gone. Then if you haven't done any of that. And that's not going to be coming back. So that's why I think it's so important. Because the stories and the languages. They're important not only for those particular cultures. I happen to believe they're important for all of humanity. Because we lose something special about ourselves when we don't preserve that we lose the stories that might tell us something about humanity in the past we lose the things about how various tribes you know have done things you remember there were so many different tribes in in, in north america over here and, and many of them went about their life in a completely different fashion some of them only did agriculture for certain crops some didn't do agriculture really at all they just ate wild berries and then hunted various animals uh, many of them lived in different things you got some that lived in teepees you got some that lived in caves you know you got some that that, that built huts you know sometimes clay sometimes straw yeah, I mean, so they're all about painting themselves differently, different headdresses. Some not had headdresses, some had totem poles, some didn't. Uh, we know from many of the oral stories that they told that uh, their ideas of the origins of the planet or, or, or the way they, their own tribes had formed is completely different. So there you go. It's a real rich history that gets lost if we allow the language to die. So hopefully we continue to, to promote that. 
Now, writing your memory is also about song. I think we mentioned this in the past on another show, and I'll mention it again because it definitely is worth repeating. Um, for the longest time, song wasn't like that, but it was about simply reciting a poem that was written. And that person was considered a singer reciting a, a song. And by reciting a poem in a dramatic fashion, that's what used to be song. That's why, if you ever look at the Bible and you see the Psalms there, they mean songs, actually. You can recite those, which are very poetic, okay? And, and that was considered the song. In fact, in many of the shorter ones, it's actually possible you could put some music to them and sing them in church and still have a, a real effect with them because they tend to be not only religious, but they tend to be very philosophical and very grounded in trying to stay strong when you're in a, a, an environment that could be rough, whether it be agricultural or tending sheep or out in the desert and all that. So you had to... You know, you had to keep your wits about you. And reciting this or memorizing this, which people did, was important. And In fact, many a times, people would actually learn from listening to someone reciting these poems, which were songs, uh, so that they could do that themselves when they would go someplace, maybe do some work. I mean, it's a primitive version of, you know, having the Sony Walkman or, or having our... You know, phones connect in now digitally, so with the little earpieces, so we can hear stuff. Uh, but that's what they did. So they could be doing, you know, tilling the ground, and you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, I wouldn't mind doing that either, because otherwise, doing all that stuff is boring as hell. I don't care how excited you are. After you do it for about a couple months, it's like, uh So you needed that. It kept your mind fresh. Definitely kept your uh, your wits about you, and, and kept your, your, the whole experience for just, for just being a. Uh, you know, a brutally sweaty, you know, uh, uh, dankless uh, job. Even though it's important, uh, the things they did. Remember, it wasn't like the people could say, you know, hell with farming this summer. I'm just going to go to McDonald's. They didn't have anything like that back then. You know, if you wasn't putting together your own food and wasn't, you know, corralling your animals for later on for slaughter for, for, for meat and milk and everything, you know, uh, you're going to die. <laughs> That's how that worked. All right, so that was writing in memory, and I really like that kind of uh, writing because it's very interesting how it's all done, you know, in your mind, and, and all done in a, in an oral fashion, and how it's still so relevant today, and, and how we want to make sure we do whatever we can to preserve that. All right, later on, and I, it became really popular in the fifties, sixties, and seventies, but. We had, we had writing on vinyl, on the actual records themselves. Uh, so you saw a lot of, uh, a lot of writers, you know, actually, uh, record in studios and, and stuff, uh, their poems. Uh, I, I know there was a lot of, uh, actors that wind up doing, you know, certain, uh, poetic works and sometimes even their own songs. You know, they would do that and, and put those out there. So it wasn't unusual. Yeah, like William Shatner that did that. But you had a number of writers that did that as well. Many times later on, with the with the um, especially with the uh, the uh, audio tape. You know, first you had the eight track, but then later on just a cassette tape, which could hold like up to sixty minutes. You had a lot of people that did audio narration of books. I had a couple of myself. I got one of um, 
uh, Christopher Lee uh, narrating some Edgar Allan Poe tales, poems and, and stories, you know, but we had a, 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 a lot of that, a lot of those books that were put out there, so people would listen to that, they can listen to that at home, you know, in their cassette deck maybe when they're exercising or taking care of their baby, so they don't have to sit there and read because it still lets them do something. You know, of course, you could put that in your Sony walkroom when you're out there walking and jogging or something, which is what I used to do for, for ages, especially when I lived in Europe. Later on, we had the compact disc, and the same thing happens, where um, people would get those uh, things produced. You'd have books on there. You know, with compact discs, later on, there was so much information you could put on there. A lot of them, you can have entire entire encyclopedias, entire giant reference uh, uh, books. I know right now the... Um, uh, the World Facts from the CIA, which is a big book they put out from about the whole world about awesome things about countries and cultures and flags and all that. That's actually on a compact disc right now. You know, so you could just read that and, and listen to it if you want or, or just read through it on your computer. But those are really, those are really popular for a long time. I'm not saying that there isn't, there isn't compact discs now that doesn't have this, but you know, it's, it's no longer popular or, or regular to get done. I mean, you still have some people doing some audio stuff. Audio books are still popular on the compact disc, but not as much art stuff uh, on an original basis. There really isn't. Uh, many of the things have moved on to, onto computers. And that's our next one over here, writing in digital. Now, I know compact discs were considered digital, but also there was analog in there too. So I'm when I'm saying digital here, I am talking strictly about your ebook readers, your computers in general, and, and then, of course, some of the programs in the computers, like various word processors. Remember, there used to be WordPerfect back in the day, and then they have this word, which became more standard. Now, a lot of people are using the, uh, the free the, the Google to make a Google Docs instead of a, you know, Word Doc. But um, that's really become the standard for great things. I mean, people can get their books done in the ebook. You can read that on your phone. Which now also writing can become in digital where you could read it on your phone. You could read it on your computer. You could read it on your tablet, which is like a mini computer, or you could read it on the ebook reader, which is just pretty much about, you know, ebook reading things. Although some of them now have, um, you know, video and audio built in some of the more advanced versions. You know, some of them also have an audio section where you can like listen or read along. That's pretty much become the standard now. Now, I know people still use the pen and the paper. I still do, but I don't, I don't do it exclusively. It's, you know, I'm not saying that's a rarity. It's a regular thing for me, but it's not as, as common. I mean, I probably write uh, more stuff about the show than I do about my own writing because it's easier just to jot on a, a small notepad, you know, the structure of a show, what I want to do, uh, write down a bunch of shows that are coming up and some of the ideas I have from there and just sort of build from there, then typing. It's just easier to do it that way. I don't do as much, but I still do. Just like I don't do as much blank writing on, on a word processor from scratch. A lot of times I just put notes in my uh, note section of the phone and then just go from there. A lot of people do this. Computers have become the standard for many writers, mainly because of two things. Mainly because it is a great storage device to safely store stuff, and, and of course, it could hold so many things. If, I mean, if a computer could hold 
a hundred thousand songs or something. Imagine how much pages it could hold of information that you're writing. I don't even know if you could fill a computer in your lifetime. That's how enormous it is. And of course, the second thing, which might even be more important, is the the text version and the email option that you have in the computer allows you to transmit something free and quickly and almost instantaneous anywhere around the world. So those are incredible um, advances that help us to be able to do things. Of course, in many ways, the computer has made it so free to do writing that it's made the market a different place. So you got writers that complain they wish it was in the old days, but... You know, if you know anything about the old days, you, you should be better off with, with this rather than that because there's a good chance that no, none of us would probably have much of a chance getting anything published in the old days because, you know, you had to be wealthy, you had to be well-connected, you had to know this, you had to do that, you know, go to this university, do this, do that. I mean, it's crazy. So be better off what we have now. But it's become standard for these reasons. So it's nothing unusual. And, of course, you can still do things your own way if you want to. I'm not recommending it, but <laughs> no one says you can't do some writing on clay tablets and make a piece of artwork out of it. No one says that you can't make papaya, which you could do. You can actually make papaya uh, in your own home by just getting some brown bags, wetting it up, and then drying it out, and you can actually do something. You can also create your own uh, parchment paper. By taking paper and burning it up a little bit and mixing it up with some coffee grinds, letting it dry, you can make something that looks like parchment paper. So you could do things, things. And then sometimes when they have projects in school, I know my kids have had to do that a few times, especially on the parchment part. We did that a couple of times. I think one, we had to make a, a pirate, um, diary or something so we did it on uh, parchment paper we even a little bit of a uh, little bit on fire on it to make it look like it got damaged in a you know pirate attack or something <laughs> so you could do this of course plenty of people have committed to memory writing that they feel is important whether that's a bible verse or two or a small poem or maybe a story from their own culture or something no one says you can't do that and keep that in your heart as someplace you can bring it anywhere you're at Remember, we've had people who are writers and, and philosophers and thinkers that they're in prisons, and a lot of times it was the information they had in their head that kept them going, things that they remembered and recited that were important to them. Of course, you still have, um, you know, a way to get things on on digital if you want and create your own dicks if that's what you want to do. It's still a possibility to do that. You know, you got the the CD writers that you can put in in, in your system on your computer and do that. Uh, vinyl is making a, a comeback, so you never know. They might have a, a way to put stuff on vinyl again. So uh, it's um, it's important to understand that regardless of the device or the vehicle or the method that we used for writing, writing has been important to mankind. I mean, I'll give you uh, some interesting examples over here, okay? All right, the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you know anything about those at all, they were discovered about 60 years ago. All right, in an ancient settlement called Qumam. They think that uh, a breakaway Jewish sect called the Essenes uh, literally had written and copied many, many uh, of the books of the Bible. Okay, I guess later on, when the area might have been invaded or they didn't feel it was safe anymore, they wind up storing these things in, in airtight um 
like wine jugs, just these big like clay vessels. And some of them were written on, on papyrus, and some of them were actually written on, on the early form of parchment. Right? And later on, in, you know, after B.C. that they did that. But they wind up storing these things, and we, we found them about 60 years ago. And they, they contained most of the books of the Bible. Thousands of fragments, and some of them had fell apart. They were able to put them together, you know, analyze them, and, and even let them out for the public to see. Uh, keep in mind, uh, with the oral tradition, as much as we talked about the aboriginals, don't forget that they were, they were popular. Um, Homer, who wrote very long poems, poem stories, uh, one, uh, the Iliad and the other Odyssey, those were, before they became written down, they were initially passed through by the oral tradition to poets before they were written. So people were talking about these. The very story about how there was a continent of Atlantis and they had great people and then it sunk from an earthquake and blah, blah, blah. That was actually an oral tradition in Egypt and it kept going on until becoming a, like a story poem. Uh, and, and then, of course, later on, even Plato uh, had referred to it. Um, a lot of people forget this, okay? But Bigfoot on the um, North American side was first an urban legend oral tradition from our Native American people. They said they were all over the place. They called them Sasquatch. That was their name. Alright? If anybody remembers anything about some of the, the Southeast, especially the, the, the people from, uh, from Nepal and Bhutan, I know in Bhutan uh, they actually have a, a holy book that actually mentions Bigfoot and talks about him. They hang around the forest. And that was from like over a thousand years ago. They wrote that in the book. So we, we have a lot of tales and things that either through oral or, or through written have been out there for a long, long time. And it's important for us to keep in mind that. In many cases, they became vital to the just the existence of the culture so it wouldn't vanish. Because remember, we had a lot of horrible things in our, in our history. We forced a lot of these, these Native American tribes to move around certainly not of their free will and there would be no way for them to keep the culture intact when they were so used to being on a particular land for so many thousands of years if they didn't already have an oral tradition or, or made sure they had those memorized and and be able to tell the their uh their their culture as they moved to a different land and had families and expanded so they knew about their language and they knew about their tales and they knew about their stories it wasn't for oral tradition all of that would have been gone through the relocation so that's that's a real that's a real important point to you know to make and to understand how how very important that is because there's something in the human condition that says that we need stories in our lives we need the tales and the songs you know we need uh, the philosophy behind certain things we need all of these to make sure that we remember who we are because remember it's a it's a real i, I feel tragedy when you have people that don't know what their past is. And I don't mean only just in a cultural way. That happens. 
But I mean, just on a personal way. I mean, because you think about it, those that have been adopted many times by wonderful families and they feel blessed and, and, and certainly grateful that someone had were willing to bring them into the family and, and, and raise them and give them, you know, a means to have a future. But oftentimes they wander for a while wondering, well, what was my past? Could I find my parent or parents? Can I find something more about my culture? If they know what their culture is, sometimes they don't even know that. You know, they take these DNA tests or they try to learn something more about their culture by trying to find their parents, you know. Because when you don't know that, there's a lot you don't know about your past. It, it does it does settle on your mind. I mean, what elements did they have? What what things can I be looking for? What things am I uh, mimicking? What You know, sometimes it's hard to go into the future if you don't know a lot about your past. Now, there's a lot of sayings about that, and they can tend to be very cute and quaint. You put them on a bumper sticker. As you know, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of those things because they mislead people and they make you think that's all that there is. Okay, I've known people personally that were adopted and had simply said, "I'm just not interested in knowing." What happened before. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I know who my parents are. I know who my family is. I know the things I'm interested in. I know how to take care of myself. And I know how to figure out how to build my future. And I don't believe that I need to know something about my past in order to be able to build the future. Because you really don't. So I've known people that said that and did that. And they didn't have a worry in the world. And didn't have anything they were, they were uh, looking back on. Now, do we know the deep recesses of every person's mind or every person's heart? Do I know the times when they're alone that they're not looking back saying, I wonder what? We're human. Maybe that does happen. Maybe it doesn't. Does it matter really uh, to what they're saying publicly? Not really. Because you can move forward if you don't know about the past. It's nice to know about the past. It can be very useful at times. But for some people... All they need to know is a rumor, and they're like, no, if that's the rumor, Jesus, I don't want to actually discover the past. Sometimes it's too painful. Who wants to know that they had a parent that was a drug addict and just dumped them off someplace? What kind of person is that now? Are they even alive? What is it worth the journey or the voyage or to learn the truth? Again, one of the things that art is really useful for is for us to understand the truth or try to find the truth or try to be able to put the truth in such ways that people can understand it and maybe accept it or possibly even you know digest it so to speak but like anything else you, you don't want to make the truth more than it is sometimes people prefer lies and sometimes people like half troops and sometimes people just prefer an exaggerated story because it's easier the handle than, than the truth because the truth is not always a lovely thing sometimes the truth can be complex and sometimes the truth can be very difficult sometimes the truth can be just dead hard to handle and people have a right to say I'm not interested in that truth and go about things the reason why they have that right is because first of all it's their life it's not yours and second of all maybe that's the best way for them to be able to 
fix their present and move into the into the future by not having to deal with that kind of baggage. Maybe it's something they just don't want to carry. Maybe it's easier for them to be able to, you know, to tell somebody, yeah, I was adopted and I don't know much about it. I'm just not interested in exploring that. And I'm happy the way things worked out and I'm moving on ahead and that's it. Maybe sometimes that's just the easy way for people to go about stuff. And that's fine. We have a right to do that because in the end, it is us that write our story. Not somebody else. Unless we allow that to happen, which is not a very good thing. Write our own story. And if that means you got to like detach from the past and not worry about the past, fine. Go make your own story then. Go build your own life. That's what it says all about to be human. And I just think that writing really helps us understand that more and helps us become better people because knowing more about ourselves, even if we don't just explore the past, just learning about ourselves through writing and the things that we think about, our own habits and the things we aspire to, the things we love, the things we lust after, the things that you know we, we are simply ambitious about. They help us to understand about some of the goals we have and some of the things we want to see as we move forward. All right, folks, until we get to June, that was the close of writing. Can be eternal, episode 203. Hope you guys are going to have a wonderful summer there. I wish you all the best and God bless. This is Mark Antin Rossi, Strength to be Human. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.